0: good morning. Football season is upon us. Columbus got their first win Friday night. My Texas Longhorns are still undefeated and ranked top five. I am number one in my fantasy football league. I beat Sam Eddington last week, you know, just kind of happy about that. And uh, Chiefs hopefully get a win today. And uh, I just love football season I love I love all seasons of sports I'm a sports fan and every year actually there is a big tournament that goes on and I would almost say it's probably one of the biggest tournaments in the nation and it's called March Madness and the reason that it is so big is because people like to fill out brackets trying to figure out who's going to be the national champion, and they make competitions based off of it, and it's always like, all right, I'm going to fill out my bracket, I'm going to research, I'm going to study, I'm going to look and see who the best team is, what the matchups are, who's most likely to be the national champion, and then they fill out the brackets, and they submit it, and ESPN has actually offered a prize, And so it started drawing in people that are like not even interested in sports to fill out this bracket because on the off chance that you get lucky enough to have a perfect bracket, ESPN will give you $1 billion. Starting in 2016, they started offering this prize and they said, if you go through our app and you are able to predict every single game, there are 67 games in this tournament, if you are able to perfectly predict the winner of every single game, we'll give you a billion dollars. And in the last seven years, and even before that, I'm sure, there has been a total of zero perfect brackets. The chance of winning that perfect bracket is probably greater than the chance of me becoming a professional athlete of any form. And I'd probably say you have a better chance of getting struck by lightning than creating a perfect bracket. And I share that with you because here are all these people and they're like, I know who's going to win this year. I'm going to predict it. I'm going to put all of my effort. I mean, they study, they like research, they devote themselves to this. And every year, these teams like to prove to us, you don't know what's going to happen in the future. I mean, anybody that thinks like, hey, I know what's going to happen tomorrow, have a child, and you will realize you have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. They will throw your entire schedule off the walls. And Solomon, he even tells us in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 1, he says, don't boast about tomorrow. Because so many people are trying to plan for their future and they're trying to predict. I mean, we have people that are like, this is what the weather's going to be like. And we were told last night that at five o'clock we were going to have hail and the sun was shining. And it was like, "Oh, the weather people are wrong again. Don't boast about tomorrow for you do not know what a day may bring. And I find it funny because especially in today's culture with all this stuff going on and i'll admit there's a lot of things that when i read like matthew chapter 24 jesus is talking about understanding the times and then you read revelation and there's a lot of stuff that is starting to look pretty familiar in those passages about the second coming of jesus and it's like kind of like all right is it ramping up what's going on i'll tell you i don't know he's coming back soon that's what he says But I'm not going to be like, on this day, next year, at this time, he will return. And there are people that are trying to do that. You had May 2012. They said the world was going to end. You had January 1st, 2000, Y2K, the world's going to end. You had multiple other days where people are like, this, this is when the world is going to end, trying to predict the future, and they're wrong. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day will bring. And these people call themselves prophets in today, saying you should listen to them and follow them. And by my calculations, they're wrong as much as the weather channel is wrong. And so I'm sharing that with you because do you know what makes you a false prophet? It's not like in baseball where if you can at least bat 300, you're going to be a pretty good prophet. It is if you are wrong one time, they say that you are a false prophet prophet. And so as we're looking at these prophecies in the Old Testament, we are seeing that they're not wrong. They are telling us who Jesus is. And especially today in Isaiah, he is prophesying there is going to be a Messiah that is going to come and he is right about it. For him to be right about one of his prophecies, pretty incredible for him to be right about as many as he was right about, about the birth of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, John the Baptist, all the prophecies that he makes Jesus fulfilled. Now, some of them are talking about the second advent of Jesus or the second return of Jesus. And so those haven't taken place, but the ones that he says that we can trace back, he is correct about. And so when we read these, We see that God is working through time and that God is speaking through these people. And that's what we're seeing in today's passage, where Isaiah is going to be prophesying. There is going to be a Messiah that is going to come and deliver my people. And so we're going to see that. And our passage is going to be in Isaiah chapter 2, starting in verse 1 through 5. And he's talking about these latter days. And so Isaiah says, The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. If you'll join me as we open up in a word of prayer. Father God, we just come before you, and God, we thank you that your word proves true. God, I thank you that you have preserved it through all of these years, and the more we try and dissect it, the more we see that it is true and accurate and applicable to us here today. And so God, I pray that that be the case, that as we look at your message and your word, may it be your word, and may we take it and apply it to our lives to just live for you in everything that we do. So God, mold us. We are the clay, you are the potter. Work in our lives, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. So Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, reveals a lot about Isaiah. It tells us the author, it tells us kind of the dating period, and it also tells us the recipients at this time. So, Isaiah 1 1, it says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And so, right there, you're given the author, you're given the recipients, and you're given kind of the dating. Isaiah 1 1, Isaiah, the son of Amos. He is the author here. And a lot of liberal scholars are trying to be like, nah, it's not really Isaiah. Like he didn't write the whole of the passage. But whenever you're reading the New Testament, you see that Jesus gives credit to Isaiah at the beginning, the middle, and the end of it. That 21 times New Testament authors are quoting Isaiah and saying he is the author of it. So those liberal scholars can just be wrong. He's saying this is who the author is, Isaiah, the son of Amos. The recipients, he says, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. That's who he's talking to. These words are warnings for them and also comforts for them. And then the dating. He says it spans during the reign of four different kings. The reign of Uzziah, the reign of Jotham, the reign of Ahaz, and the reign of Hezekiah. And we're actually told a specific date in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, where it says, In the year that King Uzziah died and so we know specifically when isaiah received his call because that's the time where he's taken to the throne room of god and he sees the cherubim flying around and they're saying holy 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 and he says woe is me for i am a man of unclean lips and then one of the elders grabs with tongs a flaming coal comes and touches his mouth with it and then he hears the voice say whom shall i send and isaiah says here am i lord send me And so we see when Isaiah is called there when King Uzziah died. We have some prophets that are contemporary prophets of Isaiah's, and that is Micah and that is Hosea. They both write about the same time. If you still have that chart that we did a couple weeks ago, that kind of gives their timing through there as well. And then the main theme that you see in Isaiah comes from the meaning of Isaiah's name. Salvation belongs to the Lord, or Yahweh is salvation. God is the one that saves. Because the context of Isaiah is that during the reign of uh, Uzziah and Jotham, they kind of received this like political and even economical high point. Things were going well for them. And then there's this threat coming in, because remember, around 722 BC, Israel, the northern kingdom, gets thrown into exile by Assyria. The Assyrian empire is the big man on campus at this point. And so here Assyria is coming in and Judah just kind of thinks, hey, we're good, we're covered. But then as Assyria starts working their way, they're like, we're not so good. We're in danger here. And so instead of trusting God, we see that what they do is they start trusting other nations and they go to other nations for help. And so God's got a word for them. He's saying, judgment is coming upon you because you refuse to honor me. You refuse to submit to me and to revere me as God. You're doing all the religious stuff, but you're not honoring me as Lord. You see that in the first chapter of Isaiah, specifically in chapter 1, verse 11, where God is saying, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? He says, I have had enough of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. He's saying, you're coming to me with all this religious stuff, but your hearts are far from me. And he says, because of that, judgment is coming. But then he also gives a message of hope to the people. He says, I'm going to preserve my remnant and they will be delivered by the Messiah that will come and proclaim liberty to the captives, will give sight to the blind, will make the lame walk. He is the one that will come and deliver you from that oppression. So that's kind of what we see in the theme is salvation belongs to God and to nobody else. It's not these other nations that you're going to try and run to. It's not your own political and economical uh, positive aspects and your ability to bring in wealth. It is only through God. The book can be divided into three major sections pretty much. The first 36 chapters or 35 chapters, Isaiah is prophesying condemnation. That's where the overarching theme is. He is saying you better get right with God. That there is going to be a time coming soon in which you are going to go into exile. You are going to be conquered because you refuse to honor me. And then verse, or chapter 36 through 39, you kind of get this like historical parenthesis where we take a moment to have this history lesson of what's going on. Where Assyria comes in and Hezekiah is trying to go and receive help from other nations. And Isaiah tells him, whoa. It's coming from God. He is the only one that will deliver you. And then the second half of it, Isaiah 40 through 66 is God giving a prophecy of comfort. Even though you're gonna go through tough times, even though it's gonna look like everything is falling apart around you, I'm still God. And I am delivering my my Messiah. I'm bringing my Messiah to deliver you. And there will come a day where like we read, You will beat your swords into plowshares, and you will no longer need war. You will no longer need other people to teach you. I will be your God, and I will guide you. It's full of prophecies. I gave you a list there, and that's not even all of them, but those are the messianic prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, that Isaiah prophesied about. Jesus being born in Bethlehem, the virgin birth about John the Baptist coming and proclaiming the way of the Messiah, that he fulfilled all of those. And then you also have prophecies that are still to come. These are usually prophecies that start with in that day or in the day of the Lord. Talking about when Jesus returns and we will enter into the millennial kingdom with God. And then you have other prophecies. Prophecies about judgment on Babylon, prophecies about judgment on Assyria, prophecies, again, about John the Baptist. And then one of my favorites that I like, showing just how God is sovereign and in control of everything, is that they prophesy about Cyrus coming to help allow the Jews to go back to Jerusalem after their exile. Cyrus doesn't come onto the scene except for about 200 years later. So here God in Isaiah, I believe it's chapter 35, is calling Cyrus by name. He is saying, Cyrus, whom I will use. And then in the end of Second Chronicles chapter 35, you see that Cyrus reads that and he's like, oh, hey, that's me. Let me send back the people of Israel to Jerusalem to build the wall, to build the temple. But it was 200 years later. But God was accurate as God always is because Isaiah even tells us God's word does not return void. What God says he will see come to fulfillment. Kenneth Hanna actually wrote that there are more than 400 quotations and allusions in the New Testament to Isaiah. It is the second most alluded to and quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament following only Psalms. Otherwise, I mean, it is all through the New Testament. And then Isaiah has been called a miniature Bible because of how it is broken down in the context that it covers. Because just like the Bible, it has 39 Old Testament books talking about the sin of mankind, the depravity of man, how we need a savior. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah talking about the sin of Israel, the depravity of Israel, and their need for, for a savior. And then you have 27 New Testament t- books talking about how the Messiah has come and he is Jesus and he delivers us from our sins. And then in Isaiah you have 27 chapters from 40 to 66 talking about the Messiah is going to come and he will deliver you from oppression. And so that's what we get to see in Isaiah. What we see in the book of Isaiah is what we see throughout the entire Bible. Our sin, our depravity, our going away from God. You just look in the Old Testament, you look at the beginning of almost every single epistle, and that's how Paul starts out by saying, You were like this. You were following your sinful ways. You were dead in your trespasses. And then we get the hope that we have found only in Jesus. Because in the Old Testament, that is what they were, are referring to in this Messiah. The one who is going to come and deliver them. I mean, imagine if at this moment we were not a free nation. Imagine if Red Dawn actually happened. If you're familiar with Red Dawn, 1980s, it was Russia. I think in 2000s they did it and it was China or Korea. Say some nation comes in, conquers us, and we are now slaves to that nation. And then somebody would come and say, hey, in a couple of years, at some time in the future, you are going to be delivered. God is going to send this person to free you from your oppression. We would be looking forward to that, right? It would be like, man, I cannot wait until I am a free person again. And that is what they were experiencing as Assyria came in, as Babylon came in. I mean, they were conquered by nation after nation. It went Assyria, then it went Babylon, then it went the Medo-Persian Empire, then it went the Greek Empire, and then during Jesus' time, it was the Roman Empire. Just nation after nation conquering them, and they're subjective to it. And here God is saying the Messiah is going to come. That's the Hebrew word, Messiah. You know what the New Testament word is? Christ. It's not Jesus' last name. He wasn't like Jesus Christ Andy Peterman. It was Jesus, the anointed one of God. It is his title. That he is saying, I have come to fulfill what the prophets spoke about. That's actually what he says whenever he's walking with the two disciples after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus. He starts with the prophets and Moses. And he says, they pointed to me. That's why we're going through this series. To show that these Old Testament passages are important because they point to Jesus. That he is the anointed one, that he is the one that is going to come and deliver us, but not probably the way that we always think. Because if you are Israel at this time, when they say Messiah, they're thinking a political leader. Because they, especially during Jesus' time, they are under the rule of the Romans. And they are like, we are waiting for the Messiah who is going to come and usher in his earthly kingdom so that we can stick it to Rome and we can be conquerors of the world. And then notice how Jesus comes in. And he comes in in Matthew chapter 4 verse 4 and he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so they're like, are you the one? Like, is this the one that we have hoped for for all these years? And so he gets this following. And then he starts saying some really difficult things. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives this sermon where he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, excuse me, he says, "'You have heard that it is said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Stick it back to them. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slapped you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also.'" Here I am your messiah and they're like, wait a minute. That sounds a little too forgiving for me Then he goes on if anyone would sue you and take your tunic Let him have your cloak as well. And this is the one that probably really just riled them up If anyone forces you to go one mile go with him two miles Well, how can somebody force you to go a mile? There's a rule at this time under Roman law that says that a Rome carrying all his pack could walk, and if he would just see you, a Jew, in your day of work, he could just be like, Jew, walk with me a mile. You carry my stuff, and we're going, it's going to be easier for me, and I'm going to burden on you. I am going to exert my authority over you. Wouldn't that get under your skin? Some of you don't even like your boss telling you what to do, and they are the one that writes your paychecks. These Romans are the ones that are overtaxing you, and yet they're saying, walk with me a mile. The problem is, it's not like going 60 miles an hour down the road. You have to return that mile. So you're going two. But what does Jesus say? He says if a Roman soldier says, you're going with me one mile, don't just go with them one. Go with them another mile. Also, love your enemies is something he says later on. And he says, pray for those who persecute you. And so again, in your mindset, if you are a Jew at this time and you are saying the Messiah is going to come and Jesus comes on and says, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And you're like, he's the Messiah. And then he's saying, love the Romans that are persecuting you go an extra mile with them, and you're like, wait a minute, we thought you were gonna come and lead an army against the Romans. You're not doing that. And so they start questioning, is he the Messiah? John the Baptist asked this very question in Matthew chapter 11, verse three. He says, he sends some messengers, he's in prison right now. He's in prison because he called out the king, for sleeping with his brother's wife. He's about to be beheaded, so he's kind of struggling right now. Like, I was told I'm going to prepare the way for the Messiah. And I figured Jesus was the Messiah. And then notice what he asks in Matthew chapter 11, verse 3. He says, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? I mean, he is low right now. He's in prison, waiting his death, and he has put his hope in the Messiah, his hope that Jesus is the Messiah. And now he's like, wait a minute, are you the one? Because Isaiah prophesied about the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 61, where he said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. John the Baptist, holding on to that one right there. Isaiah said the Messiah will proclaim liberty to the captives. I am in prison and open the prison to those who are bound. Like we are holding on to the constitution right now. It's like, oh, we need this to keep our nation running straight. They're like, we need Isaiah's prophecy, the promise of the Messiah to come and set us free. And then Jesus comes and he says, "Um, actually, uh, you need to love your enemy and you need to walk two miles when they force you to walk one. And John's like, are you the one? And Jesus actually responds by Speaking Isaiah to him, Isaiah 35, Jesus responds by saying, The eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Waters break forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert, and then he also said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. That's Jesus' response. John's like, are you the one? And Jesus says, yes, by quoting Isaiah. He is saying, I am the one who came to set Israel free from their oppression. The problem is, Israel did not see their true oppression. Israel thought their oppression was a physical one. Rome is making us do all this stuff. Rome is who we need to be delivered from. And in fact, Jesus came to say, it's not Rome. It's death, and it's sin, and it's your own selfish desires. The oppression that Israel experienced is the exact same oppression that we experience today. Oh, but we live in America. We're free people. I can do whatever I want whenever I want. And it's like, uh, how many times have you said never again, and then you turn around and do that same thing? How many times have you had that argument in your head where you're like, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it, I, I just did it. How many times have you felt that urge in your body and it's just pulling you and you can feel the physical pain of it until you satisfy it and next thing you know, you're living in that regret. You're like, I can't believe I just did that. I felt the anger welling up inside of me and I said, Self-control, you're led by the Holy Spirit, but instead I lashed out and I said words I wish I didn't, or I ended up taking my physical anger out on something I wish I never would have. Or your body is desiring for looking at images or to get some kind of release, and you're like, don't do it, I'm not going to do it, I'm going to live by God. And it's like, instead, next thing you know, you've given in to the desires of your flesh you want that drink, you want that substance, whatever it is, we all have that thing and it can be different for everybody, but it's something that you just feel welling up inside of you. And Jesus is showing us you are under an oppression. It's the oppression of sin. It's the oppression of death. It's the oppression of your own desires. That's how Isaiah opens up, by showing Israel their need for a savior. And it's not even a physical oppression because right now Isaiah's is pretty well free. They're living under the reign of King Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and then Hezekiah. They're living under their own rule, but yet Isaiah is saying, "No, you're still oppressed. You are oppressed to something far worse than this physical ability." Because Jesus says, "Do not fear the one who can kill the body; fear the one who can kill the body and the soul." That it's more than just a physical oppression, it is a spiritual oppression. And what Isaiah says is because of this spiritual oppression, you're actually separated from God. You are far from God. He says this in Isaiah 1.11. He says, "'What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices?' I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. These things, they mean nothing to me because you are not near to me. He says in verse 15, when you spread out your hands, I'm going to hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen for your hands are full of blood. And then in 59 verse 2, he says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. You are distant from me, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That there is an oppression that every single one of us has lived under, and it is the oppression to sin. Israel didn't need a political Messiah. They need a spiritual Messiah, just like us. We needed somebody to come and to bring us back to God. Because as Isaiah said in 59.2, our sins separated us from God. We needed somebody to come and restore that relationship with the Father, washing our sins clean, because we could not do it. We could not, no matter how much Don dish soap we put on ourselves, we're going to be able to wash ourselves clean. Isaiah says in Isaiah 1 verse 18, he says, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. How did that happen? Isaiah chapter 53 tells us. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then in verse 12, it says, He bore the sin of many. And makes intercession for the transgressors so that though we are scarlet, we can become white as snow. Snow. It's because of what Jesus did for us. That's what John the Baptist said about Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God in John one twenty nine, who takes away the sin of the world. He is the only one that can bring me back to God because my sin separates me from God. And I don't know about you, but the more I try and make things better, it's like whenever I stick my foot in my mouth. And the more I try and pull it out, the deeper it goes in, the deeper I dig that hole, I'm almost to China by now, it seems. It's the way it is when we try and cover up our own sin. No, no, God, I'll make it up to you. I'll do my best. Do you know that actually by trying to rely on our own ability, that's a sin in itself. It's called pride. It thinks that I can do it, that I can be good enough. And so by trying to dig my way out, I'm actually going the wrong direction. We need somebody to come and cleanse us and that somebody is Jesus. He came to deliver us. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures, just like Isaiah prophesied about. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures. He appeared to Cephas, then the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 at one time most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. It's not just that Jesus died. It's that he rose again from the dead. That's how we know the payment was paid, that the check had been cleared, that it was received by God, that we now have this relationship back with God. Because if Jesus were still dead, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we're still in our sins. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And so in verse 50, Paul says, Because of this, I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God because that's not what it is. It's not a political messiah. It's a spiritual Messiah, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. You shall not, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come the pa- to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? He says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin, the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where our deliverance comes from. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one who comes to take away the sins of the world and put us back with God. There's nobody else that can do it. I mean, I don't know if you're like me, but I like to kind of play the what-if games in my mind. And so, like, when I'm reading this analogy of, like, we are captive— We are slaves. We are in prison. My mind likes to go to, you cannot escape except for Jesus. But then I jump to the, yeah, well, there's been people that like have escaped before. Like even Alcatraz, the, the most secure prison in America at some time, people have escaped. I've seen The Rock. Sean Connery did it twice. You know, like we like to think, oh, but I can be that one guy that can escape on my own. And so it's like, okay, well, if you want to play that, what about the death analogy? That you were dead, Ephesians 1 or 2 verse 1 tells us that you were dead in the sins and trespasses in which you once walked. How many people have come back from death? It's like, well, the news said that there was this guy that like for 24 hours, he was pronounced dead, and then he came back to life. You know what happened to him? He died. Lazarus came back to life. You know what happened to him? He died. When you're dead, you are dead. There's no reviving yourself. And even if it's like, well, that one guy did, not for long, maybe for a couple more years. We were spiritually dead with no hope of reviving ourselves, And Paul tells us, but God. I love that. You were dead dead with no hope. It's not like a 24-hour, the coroner got it wrong, and then your pulse came back. It is like a, for centuries, you have been dead, no spiritual life, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with, with, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. You will never be able to save yourself. You need a Messiah to come, and that Messiah is Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, every single one of us, so also in Christ all of us will be made alive. There's nothing else. Peter says in Acts, there is no other name by which you will be saved. It is only by the name of Jesus. He came to do what our souls, what our abilities. I don't care if you took all 8 billion people on this world and we tried our hardest to earn our way or to find heaven, to work hard enough together. It will never measure up. We needed a Messiah and Jesus is the only one. You know what that also means? You're not, and I'm not. That I cannot save myself. I cannot save you. Your parents cannot save you. Your coworkers cannot save you. Only Jesus can save you. He is the only one who saves. Not presidents, not celebrities. Actually, what we're told in Isaiah chapter two is there, or in Revelation chapter six is there's gonna come a day where all of those people are going to wish that they could die. Echoing Isaiah chapter 2, in verse 17, it says, The haughtiness of men shall be humbled. The lofty pride of men shall be brought low. Everybody who thinks they're something when they stand before the presence of God are going to realize, I am nothing. And the Lord will be exalted in that day. Idols shall utterly pass away, people shall enter the caves and rocks and holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord. That sounds just like Revelation chapter 6 and chapter 9, where they say, we wish the rocks would fall on us and bring death to us, but death was all elusive. They're trying to hide from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. When He rises to terrify the earth. It's only Jesus by which you can be saved. So what do we do? Because of what Jesus did, thanks be to God, that through Jesus, death has been defeated, sin has been defeated, and we can have connection with God again. Paul tells us what we do. He says, therefore, in verse 58 of 1 Corinthians 15, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor, that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. So knowing that we have been reunited with God, Romans chapter 5 tells us that, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us so that we could be connected with God. Paul is saying, knowing that you're reunited with God, you live for him. You hold firm to his word, you walk in in his truth and you glorify him in everything that you do standing firm because his eternal kingdom is coming there is going to be a day where you are delivered from this body of death from this oppression of the world and you will have an eternity with God and he says stand firm until that day comes because people are going to try and sway you And so you root yourself in Christ and in his word and in your connection with God, and you live for him and glorify him, seeing that it's only through Jesus you have this connection. You're not working for, only Jesus did that. You're working out of, glorifying him in everything that you do. Father God, thank you for sending your Messiah. God, that we are not holding to some hope that is Uh, just gonna vanish. But God, that as the writer of Hebrews tells us, it is a sure and steadfast anchor of our soul that we can with confidence approach your throne because of what Jesus did. And so God, I pray that while we sing this closing song, we do that, that our hearts enter your presence, that God, we just worship you with our lives, not just in this song, but in this week. And until you come back to take us to our eternal kingdom in which we will live with you forever. God, I just pray that you work in our hearts until that time. It's in the name of Jesus we pray this, amen.